This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Well, good morning, New City. Again, uh, greetings. My name is Ryan Zhang. I am one of the pastors here. We continue our time through this Lenten season by studying the Book of Lamentations. Now, we did not have a scripture reading today because I will be reading from Lamentations chapter 3 throughout my sermon. But if you would like to, you could go ahead and turn your Bibles there. Um, it's on page 688, I think, uh, in the Bibles in your row, Lamentations chapter 3. Now, a couple Sundays ago, Pastor Mike mentioned at the beginning of the series that Lamentations is not a very well-known book. Some Christians may not even know that it exists. And that is true. Lamentations is a short book sandwiched between two much longer prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And most people probably don't even read Jeremiah and Ezekiel because they're long and hard and difficult and weird. Not to mention this little book sandwiched between them. If you have read through Lamentations, it's probably because you were following some kind of Bible reading plans. Well, I'm proud to tell you that even as a new Christian about 10 to 15 years ago, I knew about the book of Lamentations. I even opened up Lamentations to study it in college. And the reason was, I kept getting rejected by the girls I liked. I was heartbroken. I needed to lament. So I thought, hey, a book in the Bible on lament, I need that. I turned to the first chapter, the first verse says, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. And I thought, exactly. I was lonely in a city that is full of people. The Bible speaks to my heart. And then verse 2, she, she weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. They have become her enemies. And I thought, well, I'm not a she, but I have no lover to comfort me. They've all become my enemies. Then it goes on, Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. And I thought, this is getting weird. But then on it goes, about a city being destroyed, children being carried away, Jerusalem being defiled, and it became more clear to me that this is not a lament about romantic rejections. And after about 5-15 minutes in the book, I put it away and didn't look at it again for another few years. And perhaps you feel the same way about Lamentations in this sermon series. What does this lament about the destruction of Jerusalem over 3,000 years ago have to do with me? And we hope that our study through this book could help you answer that question and to cover, to recover the lost language of lament. And if nothing else, we can lament with the people in Ukraine who are literally seeing their cities being destroyed. But it's one thing to lament for something far away, lament for something that doesn't really affect us. It's another thing to internalize that lament as our own personal experience. So here in Lamentations chapter 3, we see an example of how to personalize a lament. If you look back in the first verse in chapter 1, the one I just quoted, it says, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. And later on in chapter 1, it says, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Zion stretches out her hands, but there's none to comfort her. And over and over in the first two chapters, we get, we get the impression that Jerusalem sits alone, neglected, 
with no one to even show her any sympathy or comfort. Instead, people mocked her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked her at her downfall. Even Job had three miserable comforters. They were not very good comforters, but at least they were there. Jerusalem sits alone. And I think we can at least connect with that, can't we? We feel most alone when we are deep in our sadness, and it feels like no one else in the world understands our sorrows. And if our suffering is the result of our own mistakes and sins, some people may even mock us. I told you so. He deserves what he gets. And the only exception to Jerusalem's loneliness seems to be this poet, the author of Lamentations. At least he sees and he cared. In the first two chapters, he speaks as a third-person narrator, describing the destruction and misery of Jerusalem. Or he speaks to Jerusalem, comforting her and telling her to repent. But chapter 3 takes on a heightened dimension. Because in this chapter, the poet takes on the lament in a first-person voice. He gets personal. But this chapter is the climax of the book, not only because Jeremiah speaks in the first person literarily, it is also the most artistic. Now to explain that, let me get into the weeds a bit about Hebrew poetry, okay? The Book of Lamentations is a collection of acrostic poems. And for those who didn't grow up speaking English or have an adequate education like me, acrostic poems means each, pers- each verse of the poem follows the letters of the alphabet. To give you an example in English, so all food is tasty, but one food tops them all. Chinese food is the best. Don't dare to disagree at all, right? You know, you see first letter of each line, A, B, C, D. That's acrostic. It's beautiful, accurate, beautiful, and creative. Now imagine doing that with all 26 letters of the English alphabet. You must love Chinese food a lot to do that. From A to Z. Well, Hebrew poetry may be a little bit easy. It only has 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And that's why most of the chapters in Lamentations have 22 verses. Each verse is a stanza with three lines in Hebrew. And each stanza begins with a different Hebrew alphabet. You can see that here at the beginning of each line. Verse is a different Hebrew alphabet. But Lamentations chapter 3 takes the expression to a, the next level. You may notice that chapter 3 has 66 verses. It's not because chapter 3 is three times longer. It's because not only the beginning of each stanza follows a different Hebrew alphabet, but all three lines of the stanza stop the same letter, which visually makes it the most important chapter in the book. And not only that, it's visually most important, it's also the dead center of Lamentations. Lamentations are five poems. Chapter 3 is the middle poem. And in the middle of chapter 3, and that means the dead middle of the Lamentations, we see the only hopeful description of God. So emotionally, literarily, and theologically, chapter 3 is the climax of the whole book. So what does this poem teach us, teach us about our lament and lamenting with others? Well, first, it teaches us to personalize the pain. Chapter 3 immediately begins with the first-person narrative. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. Now, it's not entirely clear 
whether the poet is imagining what the fall of Jerusalem would look like for him if he were there, or whether the poet is invoking a personal experience that shared the same intensity of pain. If Lamentations written by Jeremiah, which traditional, traditionally, that's what we believe, we know that Jeremiah was not personally there at the fall of Jerusalem. But he's describing something deeply personal as if the tragedy was happening to him. He internalizes the pain, he personalizes it. And that's part of our calling as Christians. To weep with those who weep. Love your neighbor as yourselves. We take on the pain of the world and lament from a place deep within our hearts, even though it's not happening to us personally. So let's look at how the, look at how the poet internalizes the lament. Verses 2 to 4, he describes his personal discomfort. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. Then in the next few verses, he describes his loss of freedom. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead long ago. He has warned me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. Then it goes back to describe his own physical pain. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove me into his. He drove into my kidney, the arrows of his quiver. And lastly, he describes his relational shame. Verse fourteen: I have become a laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has lived. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and make me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten. What happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. He describes his personal pain in great details. He paints a word picture for us. He invites us to visualize what it's like for him to suffer. And that's what really most of majority of lamentation is about. It's a description of the suffering in very graphic terms. Not only that the people have deserted him, but God was silent. The poet is showing us God's punishment is too much. It's too heavy. It's, it feels disproportionate to the punishment that I deserve. The language of lament doesn't have to be sophisticated. You can just describe what it's like for you to suffer, what the pain looks like for you. And that makes me think of a modern form of lament. It's true that we have lost the language of lament, but we do have a way to lament. Pastor Mike and Pastor Brian mentioned memorials in the last two weeks. But there's one form of lament we see almost daily in the last few weeks. You may may remember seeing pictures like these. Or you may remember the image of the body of a three-year-old boy floating on the beach of Syria as his family, in Turkey as his family drowned in the sea trying to escape war in Syria. 
President of Ukraine showed a very heart-wrenching graphic video when he addressed Congress a few days ago. Now, why show these pictures? If the news outlets just want to report the facts, they can just share the statistics. You know, city of Mayfield, Kentucky, destroyed in a deadly tornado. Syrian refugee family drowned in the Mediterranean Sea. Russian bombs destroyed apartment buildings. This many civilians died. Three million refugees escaped. Now, what's the point of the pictures? It captures our attention. Invites us to lament. Look at how terrible things are. Innocent people are dying on the streets. It's too much. It's wrong. Do something. Can we just look at the pictures of Ukraine and shrug our shoulders? And I saw the picture of the Syrian boy laying on the beach, and I thought of my son. And I go to Washington Post, and I see pictures of the war, and I said, "Not now. I don't have the emotional energy to deal with this right now. It's too much." And we have our defenses. We want to keep a safe emotional distance because we don't want to personalize the pain. But pictures are disarming. And think of songs and movies. They're not about you; they're about someone else. But they invoke personal emotions and experiences, and you end up crying. I remember an Asian man said after three Asian ladies were targeted in a shooting in Atlanta last year. And he said, "I could see this happening to my mom. It connected with him. We all have the capacity to internalize the pain. We weep, we lament. And this poet personalizes the suffering of Jerusalem, and he paints a, a word picture for us. He invites us to lament with him too, just like these pictures invite us to lament with them. We are confronted. We're confronted with the utter brokenness of the world. We can no longer live in denial." We may become what verse 17 says: We have forgotten what happiness is. It's too much, and God is silent. So, what can we do? And this takes me to the middle part of this chapter, the middle part of the book, and the poets says, beginning of verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases; His mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning. Great is Your faithfulness. Can you remember that? When you have forgotten even what happiness is, can you remember that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, even when God seems silent? And this is such a huge contrast because if you look back at the beginning of this chapter, His lament. He kept saying, "He has done this. He has done this. He has done this." The Lord's hand was heavy on him, and yet he remembers the steadfast, of, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And if your spouse, a child, or a friend has consistently done the same thing to hurt you over and over, maybe you even deserve it. But over time, it becomes too much, and you may you may say, "I can't take this anymore." I can't be with this person anymore. It's too much. The normal relationship would cease at that point. Maybe that person used to be nice and loving and lovely and good, but maybe they have changed. It's over. Now hearts would become hardened. A marriage falls apart. The relationship's broken. No more. Well, God has been punishing and judging His people. It's too much. 
Has God changed? And recently, I've also discovered that I have, I too have a limit on God. God has given our family a few hard years, but, you know, we got through it. We could take it. God is good. But what if nuclear war breaks out with Russia? And some of the world's major cities are busted in a matter of days. And half of humanity is wiped out. What if God allows that to happen? A good God wouldn't do that, would he? Even when you have forgotten what happiness is, you're at the point of giving up on life, or at least giving up on God. Will you remember that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases? His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. What do you need replenishing every morning? Probably your cell phone batteries, right? We got to make sure we plug it in overnight so it's full the next morning for us. Do you believe that God's mercies replenish for you every morning, even if you feel like you've used it up the night before? The poet can remember this because he only, not only knows about God's judgment right now, he also knows about God's promises and salvation in the past. God has been so patient with Israel, so patient. He has always been faithful, even when Israel has been unfaithful to him for so long. Every time Israel rebels, God always provides a way to return to him. Great is thy faithfulness. That's why we preach the gospel of Jesus every week because we don't want you to ever forget that God's heart of hearts, he is for you. He sent his son to die for you. His steadfast love is for you. If God is for us, who can be against us? For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your life may feel miserable right now, as if like the gospel has no immediate benefit to you at all. There's no immediate blessing. But this is not the end. So the poet tells us to wait. Verse 25, if the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bears the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it's laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. Don't be so quick to skip over the waiting. If you can wait for your phones to charge, you can wait for God to act. Sooner or later, he will act. Because this is the most important piece of information from this book. Here's the dead center of Lamentations. Verses 31 to 33. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. What's in God's heart? This is the heart of this book. And I think it reflects what's in the heart of God. That God will not always afflict from his heart. The suffering is not going to last forever. He will have compassion again according to the steadfast love, the abundance of his steadfast love. The steadfast love of God is what fills his heart. And you may have noticed that God never speaks in this whole book. He is silent, but these few lines of the poet 
remind us who God is, the poet shows us not only how to lament, but also how to comfort ourselves when God seems silent. Remind yourself these things. And these are the words you can also give to someone when God seems silent in their lives. Remember, the steadfast love of God never ceases, even when you have forgotten what happiness is. And that's the strangest thing about this book. That even in the depths of this lament, the poet remembers his hope. There's hope in the middle, and this hope doesn't automatically drown out the laments either. It's like a child who has been sobbing for a long time and he catches a deep breath and he goes on sobbing again. And the lament goes on from here. And despite these mountaintop experiences and reminders, we live most of our lives in the valleys, don't we? It feels like we have more hard days than good days. If you feel like your life has been mostly good, that's probably because you're still in your mid-twenties. <laughs> life is hard. And that's why more and more of these tags go up every week. And yet we hope. Somehow the lament and hope coexist. And lament may sometimes even drown out the hope. But lament is not the same as defeat because there's still hope in the middle. Recently, someone was talking to Stephen Colbert about his comedy and faith. Stephen Colbert is a Catholic. And um, the lady asked him if his faith and comedy ever overlapped. And Stephen said, I'm a Christian and a Catholic. And that is always connected to the idea of love and sacrifice being somehow related and giving yourself to other people. And that death is not defeat. And Stephen mentions the movie Belfast, which came out last year. And he said... It's funny and it's sad, and it's funny about being sad. In the same way that sadness is like a little bit of an emotional death, but not a defeat if you can find a way to laugh about it. No matter what happens to you, you are never, de- you are never defeated. You must understand and see this in the light of eternity and find some way to love and laugh with each other. And that's what hope is. Lament is like an emotional death, but it's not a defeat if you can find a way to hope in it. Call to mind the steadfast love of God. We can still laugh in the middle of this deep sadness. In a new city, I've never gone to a church that talks about lament as much as new city. It's probably true for you as well. You know, we, we preached through Job a few years ago. We're going through lamentations right now. We have Ash Wednesday and Good Friday services every year. We have many service to lament. I've also never gone to church that loved to celebrate and party as much as New City. Now how odd, you say. But that's both, that's because both these are true. Both things can exist in the Christian faith. We can lament, but we're not defeated. The poet goes back to lament after he talked about his hope, but his lament is transformed. When he remembers the steadfast love of the Lord, he begins to tell himself to turn to God. So verse 37, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain a man about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. If God doesn't exist, 
And there's nothing to lament. The world is what it is. It's all by chance. If God doesn't care, then there's no point in lamenting. But if God does exist and he cares, then we can approach him. He may seem silent, but that's the difference between talking to a wall and talking to a counselor who is very good at listening. He may not have a lot to say at the moment, but he is listening. And the poet begins to direct his lament to God. Remember earlier, he was talking about God in the third person. He has, he has, he has. And now he's talking to God in the second person. He begins to describe his misery to God. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgotten. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with the cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. And lastly, he prayed to God. I call to your name, O Lord, for the, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge, judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. And for the rest of chapter 3 is a prayer to God to intervene. And later in chapter 5, the whole city takes up this prayer. The prayer becomes first-person plural. The hope transforms our lament. And even if no one else in the world care about lament and prayer, we should. Because we know that God is good and God cares. And we, more than anyone, can internalize the brokenness of the world and pray for our friends, pray for the city, pray for the world. Now, God does not always punish he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And how do we know this better than anyone else in the world? Because chapter 3, Lamentation, Lamentation chapter 3 points us to the ultimate comforter. That God is not only a passerby who neglects and mocks our pain. He enters into our brokenness, internalizes and personalizes all the sufferings as a human being. He was baptized like us, even though he was sinless and needs no cleansing. He was tempted like us, even though he was holy. He died a criminal, even though he was innocent. On the cross, Jesus even quotes from our lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now God personalizes and internalizes our lament more than anyone else. But his death also shows us that the steadfast love of God never ceases. So let's go to him. In the last few weeks, we would take, like last few weeks, we would take a few minutes to pray silently on your own. And you can write down your laments of these tags in the midst of your rows. And when you come up for the Lord's Supper, you can bring them up and put them in the baskets up front. And kids, if you're not, even if you're not taking part of the communion, you're welcome to write down your thoughts and come up and bring these tags up and put them in the baskets. So let's pray, confess silently together. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.